Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here on this Labor Day weekend. And if you are taking a long weekend getaway and you're watching on the live stream or you're watching the recording later, thanks for doing that and joining us that way as well. We are continuing our walk through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we've made it through chapter 3, but as I was thinking about it this past week, two weeks ago when we first did chapter 3, I let you all say like three things, and I was so excited to get to the one section about the church, like around verse 10, that I talked the rest of the time that week. And then last week was our prayer service, and so I talked the whole time. So you all really haven't gotten a chance to share a lot out of chapter 3 yet. So I thought we'd spend one more week in chapter 3 this week, and I want to do probably three primary things this morning after we read it. I would like for you to have time to share more truths that you've seen, because I know you saw more a couple weeks ago, but more truths about God that you've seen in chapter 3. And then I'm going to try, I'm not an artist, you can tell that just by my handwriting, but I'm going to try to draw kind of visually a picture of chapters 1 through 3. Maybe it's the summary of this big picture that Paul has given us about just God creating everything and then God's purpose for the church. And as we look at that, then I'd like for us at the end to move to what I'm hoping will be some practical application for us. Say, if, if these things that we're seeing about God in these first three chapters, if this is what's true about him, and this is what is true about the church, what does that mean for us? What are some things that it means, especially for us as part of his church, and for you all to share some things that are coming to mind? And so that's the goal. We'll see how it goes. Um, but what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray together. And we're going to ask that God would speak to us by his spirit from his word during this time. That he would do the type of spiritual teaching and spiritual work in our hearts that only he can do. And so I'm going to ask you as I'm praying that you would be praying too. And that we would all just confess our need and our dependence on God. um, Our desire, our request for him to speak and teach and move and work during this time. And then I'm going to read Ephesians 3 for us. And be listening for what's this teach us about God. And then we'll move from that. If this is true about God, what's he saying to us this morning? So will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for, as we see it in this chapter, as we see what the church really is and and what you intend for the church, thank you for the enormous privilege of gathering as your people and your family and your church and for the enormous privilege of being able to come to you and have access to you in prayer because of Jesus and then to hear from you, for you to speak to us and reveal yourself to us and and make yourself known and make your mysteries known through your word. And so I pray, Father, that that right now this wouldn't be just a typical human moment and just a weekly routine, but that you would be at work in our hearts and that we would be anticipating, encountering you and hearing from you and you changing us and continuing to make us into the likeness of your Son, forming Christ in our hearts as he lives in us. And so please teach us right now by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right, that's Ephesians chapter 3. What stands out to you this morning? What's that teach us about God? Who he is, how he works, his nature, character, plan, purposes? We get to know God by reading his word. You want to point us, Chris, to exactly what you were thinking about there? When you read this, and so Paul's specifically talking about this letter that the Spirit inspired him to write to the church at Ephesus that's now been kept in the Bible for us, and we're getting to read as his church, that when you read this thing, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, these things about Jesus and the work of God in Jesus that you wouldn't know otherwise by reading the Bible. God reveals it to you. That that is a spiritual work of God. This is where you would encounter God in his word. It's the way that he's intended it, the way that he's planned it. He pours out spiritual power, spiritual knowledge, spiritual wisdom when you're reading his word. All right, what else?
and then able to do far more abundantly. All right, I tried to hit them all as you said them, John. I think I got the ones you mentioned. And yeah, yeah, all the evens except for 14, right? <laughs> um, so boldness and access to God through our faith in Jesus. Right, that, and what John was emphasizing there was that all of it is something that he's doing for us or doing in us or giving to us, that our role in this entire relationship is that we're dependent, that we rece- he gives, we receive. We're empty, he fills up. We're needy, he pours out to us. We lack, he's full. <laughs> and, and, that is, and, and that's what faith is. Faith is coming and I trust you. I rely on you. I depend on you. I, be- I believe that because of who you are and, and who you've shown me that I am, you have what I need, and I believe that you will give it to me. And so I'm coming through faith in Jesus with, like, that I know that I can actually come to you, first of all. Boldness and confidence to come before you and ask for what I need, and then that God strengthens us with power through his Spirit. You know, not us, not our natural resources, not our ability, but it's His Spirit that's the one strengthening us. And then, specifically, the connection there, that strength is to comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you would never, and just in your human thinking and your human understanding, you will never be able to comprehend how great the love of God in Jesus is for you. That God's love surpasses what you can wrap your mind around. And so you need the very strength of God at work in you for you to understand the love of God for you. I mean, there's, there, there could never be anything more God-centered than this section right here. That you need the strength of God at work in you for you to comprehend the love of God for you. He already loves you that way. It's not dependent on you. It didn't start with you. It started with him in him because that is his nature. That's who he is from all eternity past before you existed. Father, Son, and Spirit have loved one another perfectly. That God is love. That he's always existed in perfect relationship within himself. Father, perfectly loving. Son and Spirit. Son and Spirit. Perfectly loving Father. Son, perfectly loving Father and Spirit. Spirit, perfectly loving Father and Son. Perfect love relationship within himself. That is his nature. And when he created, he loves his creation. When he created his people, he loves his people. So that's who he's always been. He loves you that way, but you won't realize it. You won't know it. You won't grasp it. His love is bigger than your mind. His love is bigger than your ability to understand. But he wants you to know that he loves you. Like, he, he doesn't do everything that he's done in Jesus, everything that he's done in the gospel. When, when Romans 5 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But he makes it, that's what, he demonstrates his love. He shows it. He has acted in history in a way that you can see the way that he loves you. And then he gives his spirit and his power so that your mind will actually be expanded spiritually to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is his love for you. So that you need God's strength in you to comprehend God's love for you. And then able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So you know, God has given you access to him. That you can come boldly with confidence. Like a little child comes to their father. That, that you can come to him in Jesus and say, Daddy, this is what I need. 
I need you. I, 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 just, I know that you love me. I know that you give what I need. Here's what I need. You can come to him believing that whatever it is, he is here for you and he loves you. But then he comes back and like, hey, whatever you can come up with, whatever you can think to ask me for, more than that. Far more than that. Far more abundantly than that. Put it all your thoughts, all your imaginings, all your dreams, roll it all up together, and it doesn't even begin to touch the surface of what God's able to do because of his power. And then what God's willing to do because of his love. Like the one who can do whatever he wants. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. Can you really imagine that? That whatever is in your heart to accomplish, you can bring it about because you have that kind of power. The one who can do whatever he wants wants to take all that power and use it to help you understand how much he loves you. Just meditate on that for a second. There's only one person, one being like him. He is God alone, the one and only God. God over all can do anything he wants. All the power that exists in all reality belongs to him, flows from him. He's the source of all of it. And he says, I'm going to take everything I've got, more than you can imagine, more than you can comprehend. I'm going to take all I've got. And I'm going to use it so you'll know that I love you. And if you ever realize that he, the one who's like that, loves you that way, all the glory of God flows from that. That you, You'll see how glorious his love and power are, and the result up here, you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. This is what God created you for. That, he, that, that his overflowing abundance would fill you up. That who he is in all of his grace and love and kindness and mercy and goodness would flow into you. That, that you would be connected to him as your source of life. As your source of everything good. Every good and perfect gift. That we're dependent on him and that he provides all that we need. And then the other phrase here, you know, we focus on far more abundantly, but according to the power at work within us, this thing that surpasses anything we could ask or imagine or dream, that's what he's putting in us. That's what he's giving to us when his spirit comes to dwell in us. The spirit of Christ is the source of all the power of God. This is what he offers to you as his people. This is what he offers to you as his church. And so, John, I don't even know what we write down right here. Um, we are completely dependent on God. God has everything, period, but we need. <laughs> and then God gives. everything we need in Jesus. Every week at this time, 
I've got every notification turned off. You know, this is like five weeks in a row, right? I've got every notification turned off. I've got sleep mode turned off. It never does this. It's got this one time at 11 a.m. every week. I don't know. Sorry about that. God gives everything we need in Jesus. And take these last two right here. God has everything we need. God gives everything we need in Jesus. I was almost saying this a second ago, but I want to just push it a little bit farther when I said the one who has the power to do whatever he wants uses that power so that you'll know that he loves you. Also think about both sides of this. And I know I've talked about this before, but I think it's, it's one of the best ways to really comprehend who God is and how unique he is and that he's just different than all of us and how perfect it is for us that he is who he is. God has everything we need. So, you know, the one who has all power, all things, all that. Like, you can imagine this being who has everything, has all authority, all power. And then God gives everything we need in Jesus. That's another category. Because you could imagine an all-powerful being who doesn't love you. Right? Who doesn't care about you. Who doesn't want to be good to you. How awful would it be if God were this powerful but not this loving? That he could use his power to do whatever he wanted and his power wasn't turned towards you for good. Just powerful, not loving. Or flip it the other way around and imagine a God who is all loving, who loves you with a height and breadth and width and depth of love that you can't comprehend, but he can't do anything about it. He's not powerful enough to act on his love and bring about the things that his loved ones. And and for those of you that are parents, probably on some level you can experience the second one. There's things that I want for my girls that I can't do for them. <laughs> There's things that I wish that I could, I wish I could be better for them, give them more. And I don't mean like more worldly stuff. I mean more goodness. <laughs> Teach them better. I wish I had more wisdom to know what they need in the moments that I could really see into their hearts and always give them exactly what they need. And I can't. And I find myself like regularly having to come back to them like, I'm sorry. <laughs> That I don't always react the right way. Don't, that I don't, sometimes I just don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's good for you, for me to be hard on you right now, or, or for me just to, to drop this and it's, it's not a big deal and our relationship's fine. Like, I just don't know. And so you can imagine a being who can do whatever he wants, but he doesn't care anything about you. You can imagine a being who wants to give everything to you, but he can't do it. And then you see the beauty of the one who has all the power in the universe has said, I want to use my power for your good because I love you. And the one who loves you perfectly and completely and says, every good and perfect gift, I want to give it to you in Jesus. He's like, and I can. I'm able to. The things I desire for you, the things my love wants to carry out for you, I can and I have. I've done it in Jesus. It's all right. Now, this is the only place you can find it. It will only come in Jesus. But it's there. And I'm telling you when, you, when you come and you encounter me in my word and you understand this mystery, I'm telling you, here's where it all is. Come and feast and enjoy and receive it all in Jesus. And so all the power, all the love, this perfect combination of God being all that we need. So we're completely dependent on God. God has everything we need. God gives everything we need in Jesus. Any other truths about God in chapter 3 that stand out to you? God gives spiritual maturity through trials. You want to point us to the verses you're looking at?
God gives spiritual maturity through trials. Yeah, I mean, this, this could be a whole month of sermons. This could be a whole lifetime of sermons, both because of how often we see this in the Bible and how often we experience this in life. And it's actually something that I don't think, like somehow in the eight billion words I've said in the past three weeks about this section, we haven't talked about this thing here. It's also back up here in verse 1. We just haven't mentioned this detail. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Right? Paul's in prison when he's writing this. And we know this was a fairly regular thing for him. Right? Arrested for a while, in prison for a while, miraculously busted out, go preach somewhere else, arrested again, in prison for a while, earthquake, busts him out, arrested in prison, angel, you know, house arrest for a couple of years in Rome, really, I guess, but over and over and over. And so he's saying, hey, for the sake of you here in the gospel, I'm in prison right now. But don't lose heart over that. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't look at what you can see with your physical eyes and see, think that everything's falling apart or everything's going wrong because it's not. And really what he's done in the section leading up to that is he's tried to lift up their heads and open their eyes to this reality that's far greater than just what can be seen in his life in that moment. And he's saying, God rules and reigns over all things in Jesus. And he's accomplishing his eternal purposes in the church right now. So don't be discouraged about the fact that I'm in prison just because I came and preached the gospel to you. Like what's going on is for your glory. God is accomplishing his purposes. God is building his kingdom. And God is doing this spiritual work in you, and Paul's saying, and in me, where he's training and teaching and developing things in us that don't come otherwise. And I'm not going to sit here all day. I'm going to make myself not do it. But I just, I think there's a couple ways to see it that are really helpful to us. That, and I know I've said this before, but this is one of the things I thought God teaches me over and over and over. I forget it over and over and over, and he comes back and teaches me again over and over and over, and so I think it's okay for us to repeat it. That there, there may be this point in our spiritual life where we say, hey, I feel like I'm filled up with the grace and love of God, my relationship with God, and that's because I'm an inch deep, and I got filled up. Like It's true, to, I'm filled up, but I don't hold very much. And God basically says, I want to give more of myself to you. But the only way you can receive more of me is to have more capacity for me. And so I'm going to carve you out. I'm going to chisel you out. I'm going to dig you out. And one of his main tools, if not his primary tool in this life for deepening you, for giving you that depth of character, is suffering. Darkness, loss, grief. And he says, I'll come and I'll chisel you out and I'll create a new depth in you. And it will be painful because that's just that's what happens when this stuff gets chiseled away. And he's like, but there'll come this moment where suddenly you realize I used to be an inch deep. And from this suffering, from this trial, from this hard time, God's maybe 10 feet deep. And used to, I could, I could receive an inch of God's grace, and it was glorious, and it was wonderful. And I was filled up with an inch of grace, and I could receive an inch of his love, and it was glorious, and it was wonderful. And now, 
Now he can pour in 10 feet of his love, 10 feet of his grace, and there's a depth of appreciation, and there's a depth of enjoyment, there's, there's a depth of gratitude that couldn't have been otherwise. Like You get to this side of it and you say, he had to do this in me to make me someone who could really experience his love in this way. He knows what he's doing. He sees what he's doing. And, and, and he's willing to do it because he wants you to know his love in that way. And so, yeah, God gives spiritual maturity through trials. Well, I'll leave it at that for now because you may have a few more things. What else stands out to you? What are you looking at? Humanity tends to keep God in a box. And let's just add this. God made the box. Yeah, I, we're all guilty of what I think about God. We don't say this out loud, but what I think about God will be, in my mind, the extent of who God is that I'll still be the definer of God. Whatever I can think about God, whatever I can understand about God, that's how big God is to me. And the, probably the best starting place would be to always say, God's bigger than that. <laughs> what, what you should think about God, what you should know about God, is what God tells you about God. Let that be the starting place, and then trust that he's bigger than you understand, and that everything that you don't know about him is consistent with what he has revealed to you about himself. That if you could know it all, you would see that all this fits with all that. And just because you can't understand that, it doesn't mean that this isn't precious and wonderful to know about him, because it is. But just don't ever assume, because this is what I know about him, that's all there is to him. You know, immeasurably more than all we ask or think. And so, Whatever your thoughts are about God, when they're based on what he's revealed about himself in his word, they are true and they are accurate and they are consistent with the fullness of who he is. But they aren't the fullness of who he is. <laughs> they're just what you know about. They're just your thoughts about. And he's bigger than that. He's greater than that. And then also, whatever your thoughts are about God, if they're not based on the truth of his word, like if they're just your thoughts about God or the things that you've picked here and there from the world and from pop culture and from your own musings and your own opinions, they may not be accurate at all about who he is. And it's always important to bring those things back to his word and ask him, will you keep shaping my thoughts? Will you keep pulling me back to you? Will you show me more of who you are and correct me and change me and help me know you more accurately? So yeah, God doesn't fit in our box because God made all the boxes. Uh, and somebody else was talking then. What's... So yeah, which is for your glory? And he ends this way too down here. To him be the glory in the church in Christ. So I mean, this is a huge truth. All that we do Is for the glory of God. If we were to try to run through like a summary of the entire Bible, I think that this, the, the concept of the glory of God would be one of the biggest pieces 
that we could grab hold of and say, this is why God created you. That you exist for his glory. You exist so that who he is, like in all the richness of his character and all the greatness of who he is and all the, the marvelous and wonderful things that are always true within him, you exist so those things will be seen and known and praised and worshipped. That, that he created you so that his glory will be on display in creation. That that's always the purpose for your life. And, and Paul basically says, even when I'm in prison, it's for his glory. Even, even when I'm suffering, like the, the, this work, and that you now, he's telling the Ephesians there, like you're part of his family. He's your father. You're, you're not, his glory is your glory. You get to share in that with him. And then he comes in and then he's like, this is the purpose of everything, that all his work in Jesus and everything he's doing in the church, to him be the glory. That he's turned all of his power and all of his love for this purpose. And actually, and I tagged on chapters 1 and 2 down here just in case we need to refer back to them. And it's, he says it three times in chapter 1, if you were here with us several weeks ago, if you want to go and look back to it. He's talking about like all the eternal plans of God working out in history in chapter 1. And three times, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Like here's why he's doing all of it, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then verse 12, that we might be to the praise of his glory. And then again in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. This is the end result of all the infinite eternal work that God is doing that, that it would all be for his glory. And glory means like worship him, praise him, thank him. That he is perfect, he is love, he is gracious, he is that stuff. His glory is basically when people are declaring that's true about him, the angels are declared, when it's being said and demonstrated and seen and known and he's worshipped for it. That's his glory. You could almost say, like, all the perfection of his character. He is all that stuff, whether any of us ever see it or know it, right? Like, he's always perfect. He's always full of everything. But when we praise him for it, it's his glory. When, when it's shown that he's perfect in these things, when it's seen and known and he's worshipped for it, that's his glory. One more truth about God. Something else really standing out to you? Going once. Going twice. All right. Let's see if I can draw a terrible, terrible picture here, all right? Just stick with me. And I'm trying to make the screen a little bit bigger. I was thinking about when we started in chapter 1 and we were wrestling with before the foundation of the world, <laughs> like when God alone exists, time doesn't exist, in, in timeless eternity past, that God in his heart and mind has this plan of the gospel in Jesus to make himself known. And so it's like at that moment there's just God. Like, that's all there is. Nothing else. And, and I don't know how to depict that, by the way, visually, but just this, like if you could go forever back in this direction and forever in this direction and obviously forever this way too, and God's all that exists. And somewhere along the way, it said it in chapter 3 today, God who created all things. And so we know that at some moment here, God creates... And 
this first big thing of creation, it's bigger than just the physical world, the spiritual realm here. All spiritual beings, just like when chapter 3 they were referring to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places or in the spiritual realms, that God creates everything that exists. And then within the spiritual realm, I think this is the best way to depict this as we read the whole Bible, is the physical realm. And the reason that I put it within is because I think that everything in the spiritual realm overlaps with the, spirit, the physical realm. Right? That, that everything that God is doing spiritually that we can't see with our own eyes is affecting everything here in this physical realm. But the spiritual realm is also bigger than the physical realm. There are things that we can't see that are reality. And, and then everything we can see is tied to the stuff that we can't see. And so, you know, when God creates this physical realm somewhere right here, best I can tell, here's where time starts, right? And we've got physical creation at this moment. Now, before that, like when, I don't know how to talk about, like, what's before time, because before doesn't mean anything, right? That's, like, God's forever back there, <laughs> forever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> but what we read in chapter 2 is that as a result of sin, here within the physical realm, there's hostility between people. And uh, let's try to, let me try to find that real quick in chapter 2. I know this is small over here on the side. That's still chapter 1. Here's chapter 2. So chapter 2. Verse 14, he himself is talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that was existing between Jews and Gentiles, between people. And then in verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So hostility within humanity between people and then hostility from us toward God. That everything that God's created, we see this hostility playing out between people, hostility between people and God, that we're, we're enemies. That there's hate and anger and bitterness and rage and selfishness and self-centeredness that breaks down our relationships with one another and our relationship with God. And the answer that Paul gives here for what God's done, he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Like in the face of hostility, he's peace. He's broken down in his flesh. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Back down to verse 16 now. Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So he comes and he brings peace. He brings reconciliation all through the cross. And so I was trying to think of this, you know, this picture that we need hostility to go away. Between us and God, between us and each other. And God has this plan where the cross is the answer for that. That it breaks down hostility between us, and it breaks down hostility between us and him. And that brings us to chapter 3 then, where through the cross, what God has created, this one people that God has created that we read about today, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. 
And so back here, this plan that God was unleashing when he creates the spiritual realms and he creates the physical realm and he comes and he deals with the hostility that's been created by sin. And there's the who created all things, by the way. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so by the cross, where there was hostility, God creates the church. Let's uh, erase the red. I'll write it in blue so you can see it over time. So here's the church now, created by God through the cross, that the people of God are united within the church to one another and to God. There's not hostility between one another in the church when this is working the way it's supposed to. There's not hostility between us and God. We aren't his enemies. We're his children, his family, his friends, his people. But the result here, this is the piece that just, it just keeps through the church, God, who's up here and existed forever, is intending to make something known about himself, and not just to us, but when it's the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, like everything that he's created in the entire spiritual realm here, like beyond just us, beyond just this physical world, he wants to make known his manifold wisdom. And so you take the church, and it's being seen in the spiritual realms, right? beyond the physical realm. And what they're seeing, when the angels and demons in the spiritual realms look at the church, and they see the work of God in the gospel, and they see, look how God is creating redemption and reconciliation and restoration. Look how he has forgiven sins and united people to himself. Look how he's taken enemies and made them his children. Look how he's taken outcasts and people deserving of wrath and made them his people. Look how he has shown his love and grace in the cross of Christ. When the, when the angels and demons in the spiritual realms see what God has done to make his people his people, to make his church his church, the manifold wisdom of God is shown. And then the same thing, listen, he's saying the same thing, though, about the way that we love one another. That when people who shouldn't have anything in common, who should be hostile toward one another and enemies of one another, who should hate one another, learn to love one another and forgive one another and show grace to one another and live in community with one another and live in relationship with one another, and they say, we've got something in common now. God's our Father. We're part of the same family. We're brothers and sisters and the way that the Father loves us, we're learning to love one another. That again, when the angels and demons in the spiritual realms see the love of God on display in the church between God and people, but then also between His people, between one another, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the heavenly realms. And then back to that phrase we were looking at chapter 1 three different times, that the manifold wisdom of God, what it's actually doing is to the praise of of his glorious grace. And when you say to the praise of his glorious grace, in a way, God pulls back the curtain right here more than I think he does anywhere else in the Bible. And he says, when you want to ask the biggest question, like the question that nobody can really fully answer because you can't peer deep enough into my mind, 
I'm going to give you a little bit of the answer. The why. Why did he even create? <laughs> if, he's, if he's perfect within himself and fully satisfied and has everything, why create? And then why? Why allow the fall? Why? Like if he knew all this was coming, why? Because he intends for his grace to be seen. He says that his grace is so rich and so valuable and so beautiful and so glorious that it's worth it. Really, because if you think about this, you can't see grace. You can see love when there's perfection. Three perfect people within the Trinity can love one another perfectly. But this idea of grace, this idea of giving what's undeserved, because I think the Father deserves the love of the Son and the Spirit. The Son deserves the love of the Father. So the Spirit doesn't, they're all perfect and perfect in relation, perfectly deserving. But he creates other outside of himself, and that other falls. We aren't what we're supposed to be. We haven't done what we're supposed to do. We haven't responded to him the way that he deserves. And what we deserve is to be cast off. What we deserve is to be destroyed. What we deserve is to be discarded for God to say, hey, you're not me and I don't need you and here's what you get. Here's my justice. Forget you. But he said, no, this moment when you fall, this moment when you're not enough, when you're not good enough, when you don't deserve it, this moment when you turn your back on me and you rebel against me and you cut yourself off from me, in that moment now, for the first time, as far as I can grasp it based on what the Bible says, for the first time in all reality, God gets to show a new aspect of his love. The grace of his love. The grace that now looks at undeserving creatures and says, I'll love you anyway. The grace that looks at people and says, I know what you should get. I'm not giving that to you. I know what you can never earn. I'm giving that to you. I know I should write you off. I'm not going to. I know I should condemn you. I won't. I know I should destroy you. I won't. But there's a dilemma in that for God. Because he's always been perfect. Perfectly just. Perfectly righteous. Perfectly truthful. He can't just look at you and say, hey, it's okay, forget about it. He's got to be honest. You don't deserve this. You can't earn this. You should be destroyed. The only thing that you should get from him is wrath and death. That is what your sin deserves. So what's he going to do? And here's the manifold wisdom of God. Here is the manifold wisdom of God in the cross that somehow he says, I will maintain perfect justice because I will punish my son for your sin. Everything that is owed will be paid. Everything that needs to be said about how awful sin is, I will say it. Every judgment that needs to be made, I will, I will make it. All the wrath that needs to be poured out on your sin, I'll pour it out on your sin. I just won't pour it out on the sinner. And by faith, when you're united to Jesus, he takes all of your sin and he transfers it to Jesus and he puts it on Jesus and he punishes it the way that it should be punished. And it's paid for the way that it should be paid for. And justice is perfectly satisfied. But then in the manifold wisdom of God, he doesn't stop with justice. He satisfies his justice and he makes a way for his justice to open the door to his grace. And he says, your debt's been paid. 
Your sin's been punished. It's been removed from you. It's been taken away. Death was required and death was given. And so now, I don't have to treat you like a sinner. I can love you. I can pour out the fullness of my love. I can forgive you. I can remove your sin from you. And I can give my life to you. I can give my love to you. I can give my righteousness to you. And then you'll have everything you need to be right with me. Not because you've earned it, but because I've given it to you as a gift of grace. And here's perfect justice and perfect grace. And only God could come up with this. Only God could pull this off. And that's why the manifold wisdom of God is seen at the cross when He unites us back to Him and makes us His people in His church. And then He says, and that's, that's the gospel I have given you, the good news that I have given you, that you would know me this way and you would help other people know me so that you would declare, this is the type of God I am. A God of perfect grace and perfect love. A God who gives everything that's needed. A God who pays your price for you. You owe it to Him, and He pays it for you. And so then, the last thing I'm going to say about this, and I want you to talk about any kind of application that's popping up in your head. If that's who God is, and that's what God's accomplishing in the church, and this really starts the application for us, but do you realize how much more massive And how much more significant, how huge of a role, a place, a peace that God has given to the church in this epic story that he's been telling for all reality. This is the God of the universe, the only God who exists, making himself known, revealing something about himself that no one else has ever known, the mystery of God hidden for ages. But no one has seen his grace until he creates this drama, this story where he puts it on display. <laughs> and his creatures rebel and they deserve to be destroyed. And he says, I won't destroy you, I'll destroy my son instead. I won't kill you for your sin, I'll kill my son for your sin. I won't pour my wrath out on you, I'll pour my wrath out on him. And then I'll take everything that's his and give it to you. I'll unite you to him in faith and his goodness will belong to you. His perfection, when I look at you, I'll see Christ dwelling in you. Do you realize the role that God has given you? If you're part of his people, if you're believing in Jesus, if you're part of his church, and do you realize like, how tiny and myopic it is for us to think that this thing that we call church is a building where we gather once or twice a week in a weekly routine and that that's the point of it. God intends to make himself known to the entire world and to everything that exists beyond this world through his church. You may not have thought about it that way, but that's why we're here today. That's why we exist. Every, when we say for the glory of God, that's what it looks like. That's why you are the church. His glory is not contained in this place at this moment. 
He intends to live in you, live in his people as his church, that you would take this gospel of his grace and his glory to the whole world, and that as you live that out, listen, as you live that out, no matter what you see with your physical eyes in this world, no matter what the results look like, if you are living that out, it is echoing out in the spiritual realms beyond everything you can see. Live a life of grace. Live a life of love. Live a life of the gospel. Live a life of reconciliation. Live a life of forgiveness. Live a life that says, I won't be a source of hostility. I won't be a source of writing people off. I won't be a source of punishing people endlessly with my view of justice. I won't be a source of bitterness and anger and rage. No, God lives in me now by the Spirit of Christ. And this is who He is. And when I live out the grace of his gospel, his glory is seen in the spiritual realms, no matter what we see right here. I got just, my words aren't enough to try to tell you how massive this is and how it redefines everything about our entire lives. This is why it matters. This is why it matters. Because it's what he's chosen to do from all eternity past. And he's brought it all about in Jesus by the cross. And he created the church for this very purpose. And he's called you and made you part of it for this purpose. Application, if that's true about God, what stands out to you? What's he saying to your heart this morning about your life or about, about us as the church? Just anything that's hitting you right now. He's going to take care of us? Yeah. Oh, I'm still quite colored here. Let's fix that. God is going to take care of us. (laughs) He's not going to fail in his purposes. And the thing is, when you start to realize that this is a story where he has allowed brokenness, he's allowed fallenness, he's allowed failure, he's allowed sin. Because it's, one other way to think about it, to illustrate it, is to say the, the brightness, the beauty, the light of God's grace is seen against the backdrop of our failure and sin. That he allows the darkness of us falling, just like when night falls and you see stars that you can't see in the daytime, to show the stars and the constellations of his grace for them to be seen. That this was his purpose and he's working it out. And so what it means is when you look at the world and even when you look at your own life and you see brokenness and you see failure, and I know that like, depending on how you view the world, like you could look at world events all over the place right now and you think this whole thing is a mess and it's just getting worse and it doesn't matter like what news feed I get through Apple, like it all sounds terrible. That shouldn't be surprising. <laughs> This world is broken. This world is falling apart. But God is working a plan of redemption that ultimately is going to be seen fully when Jesus comes back. And when you, like, if we can zoom out to this epic view, and look, I know that none of us can stay here very long. It's just too big. Like, to try to stretch your mind to what God's been doing for all eternity, it's too much. But if you can zoom out for just a minute, you realize, oh, the brokenness, he knows about it. 
It's part of the plan. He's redeeming. He's showing grace. For the, to the praise of his glorious grace, he's going to redeem all the brokenness. And so it doesn't mean that God's failing. It doesn't mean all hope is lost because the deal is until it's the end of the story, it's not too late. Because this is the God who at the very heart of the story, the middle of the, the center of it all, his son died. God the son was dead and buried and it was dark. And that wasn't the end of the story. Right? If that's not the, if God dying isn't the end of the story, <laughs> the stuff in your life and the stuff in the world right now is not the end of the story. He came back to life. His life was stronger than death. And if he can redeem the cross, the cross is the most wicked expression of evil in the history of the universe. And he took the worst evil that's ever been done and he redeemed it and turned it into the greatest good we've ever known. Right? The, the, the most evil and sinful thing that could ever be done is that humans would kill their creator, that they would look on the perfectly sinless Son of God and judge him and kill him and crucify him as a common criminal. It's as wicked and awful as it could possibly be. And at the very same time, it is the way God saves you and me and saves some of those people who killed Jesus that day. It is his grace. It is his goodness. And it is for his glory when you see his wisdom. He's like, yeah, I can take the worst you can do and I can make it the best of all. That's redemption. That's what he's doing with your life. That's what he's doing with his world. He's going to take care of it. He's going to work this out. because he's already, he's already dealt with the hardest thing. He's already given us the guarantee. He's going to finish it when Jesus comes back. God's going to take care of us. What else? Mm. God's grace is meant to be seen. So how am I showing it? I mean, his grace was always there. It's who he is. Like it's it's always been an aspect of his perfect love. But if, if we're reading part of the mystery of Ephesians 1 through 3 correctly, God created everything that exists to show his grace. It was already there, but he meant for it to be seen, experienced, received. It's the very nature of who he is that he wants his grace to be seen and received. And if that's true... And now we're his people, and we've been given this message and this mission. How am I showing the grace of God? How am I show like how the thing that he has poured into me, is it flowing out of me that it'll be seen? If I'm his body, like that's where we were in chapter one, that we are now the body of Christ. If we are his body, how is his grace being lived out through us? Because this is why he's doing everything he's doing. What else? Other applications. Hmm. God's grace 
is for all people. You know, the categories that Paul has hammered in these first three chapters, and it's because it was the time they lived in, the culture they lived in, is Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew. And this was a huge barrier in the early church. The Jews had historically, religiously, culturally been so separated from the Gentiles for so long, for for 2,000 years at this point, set apart and separated from them, that in the early church there was this barrier of, how can we be united to these people who we've been so separated from? We're the people of God, not them. We're holy, not them. And so Paul keeps, he's like, no. Like the, when you realize that you're made right with God through Jesus alone, right, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, it's not your effort, it's not your goodness, it's not your religious accomplishments, it's not your faithfulness or your discipline or your person. Like it's nothing in you because in you, you're an enemy of God. You're dead and trespasses and sin. When you realize it's nothing in you and it's all because of Jesus and it's a gift that God gives you in Jesus, well, all of a sudden, that blows the whole thing wide open that anybody can receive that. Whatever they have or haven't done, whoever they have or haven't been, wherever they come from or don't come from, it doesn't matter. It's the most wide, it's the most inclusive offer that could ever be made whosoever, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, God will save them and receive them and accept them in Jesus. It's also the most narrow offer that's ever been made because it's only in Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other way for anyone to be made right with God. However religious you are, God makes this offer to you in Jesus. It's for you. However irreligious you are, God makes this offer to you in Jesus. It's for you. It is for everyone. It is enough for everyone. His grace is sufficient for everyone. And at the very same time, no matter how religious you are, it has to be in Jesus and nowhere else. And no matter how irreligious you are, it has to be in Jesus and nowhere else. It's Jesus and Jesus alone because what we saw right up here is that everything God has done, not just for all of world history, but for all of eternity, everything that God has done comes to this moment, this focal point at the cross, and Jesus is the one hanging on the cross. Jesus is the one resurrected three days later by the power of the Spirit, proving that He is God the Son. There's nobody else like Him, and there's nowhere else that you will find access to God, that you will become part of God's family, that you will find the grace of God, except through faith in Jesus. What else? Yeah. <laughs> if God can use, and he was Saul when his life started, when God changed his life, he changed his name to Paul, who's the guy writing this letter, you know, the, the main church planter in the New Testament. Starts more churches than anybody else that we've got a record of. If God can use Saul or Paul, he can use you. 
And even more, if God chooses to use Saul, Paul, God chooses to use people like you. Like God can definitely use somebody like that, but it's not that God, in, Paul says up here, when he starts in verse 1 of chapter 1, I gotta go the other way, don't I? Here, I can go back to, let's spread this back out if I can. There we go. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Why do I have this job? Because it was God's will for me. I didn't earn it. I didn't choose it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't work my way there. I couldn't get there. I didn't ask God to give this to me. God called me to this. This is what God intended. And who Paul Saul was is a Jew who was so arrogant and so prideful and so self-righteous in all of his religion that when other Jews started following Jesus, he was having them arrested, thrown in prison, and he was voting to have them murdered. That's who he was. That's how hard his heart was toward the things of God. That's how lost and blind he... He thought that he was doing the work of God by killing people who followed Jesus. You can't be more off than that. And so then we get to chapter 3 today. I'm going the wrong way, aren't I? Chapter 3 is at the top today. All right. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. What he's saying right there is, here I was, as lost as can be, persecuting the people of God, killing the church of God, opposing the very work that Jesus died to bring about. And God gave me, out of everybody in the world God could have chosen, God gave me grace and revealed this mystery to me that he would use me to make Jesus known to all the non-Jews in the entire world, the Gentiles. God's got a whole church at this point, right? I mean, he's got the, the original apostles. Why not Peter? Why not John? Why not James? And we've got all these other heroes popping up in Acts, right? Why not Philip? Why not Barnabas? Why not Stephen? And God picks the guy who's the most wretched, the most arrogant, the most prideful, the most lost, the most opposed to the things of God. Do you think that's an accident? Like when God, you know, I say a lot that God looks and he doesn't say, hey, you've got what it takes, or you're good enough, or you earned this. He doesn't do that. Or he, he doesn't even look and say, I can see something in you. This will be a good investment. You know, it'll pay off over. If I choose you now, eventually you'll make me glad of it. That's not what he's looking for. But just because God's decisions aren't based on anything that you have doesn't mean that God's decisions aren't based on anything. One of the things we see pretty often in the Bible is that God's decisions are based on what you don't have. <laughs> God's decisions are based on how much you would never qualify if it depended on you. I mean, it's exactly what we get in the Old Testament. When he picks Israel, Moses is about to die. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in his final sermon in Deuteronomy. If you want to read it, he hammers them over and over and over. He's like, you're right, God chose you. God saved you out of Egypt and made you a nation. It wasn't because you were the biggest, the strongest, the best, or the most righteous. Because you were the smallest, the weakest, you weren't even a nation, and you are stubborn and hard-hearted, and you have been stiff-necked the whole time I've known you. 
God chose you precisely because there was nothing in you that would make God choose you. And he wanted everyone to know it's a choice of grace. And that's what he's doing with Paul here. And actually, this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy. I don't have it on the screen, so if you want to turn there, you can, but I'll just read it to us. In 1 Timothy, when Paul's explaining later, like, here's why God called me. It's exactly what we just wrote down right here. He says, I thank Christ, this is chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength, because even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And so Paul's like, whatever you've done, I'm as bad as you are. However far gone you think you are, I was that far gone. Whatever you think, he was like, I blasphemed the Son of God. I denied who he was. I persecuted his church. I was violent about it. And he says, here's why. Here's why Jesus chose me when I was acting that way. For that reason, I was shown mercy. So it's not, hey, God chose me because I was the best, or God didn't choose me because I was the worst. It's because I was the worst, God chose me. Like here, You want to know the reason why God chose me? Because I was the worst. Because I was the least likely of all to ever be used this way. For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. This is exactly what Paul's saying. Why, why did God choose me that way and give mercy to me? Because he wanted you to look at Paul and say, if God chose Paul, God will choose me. If God's mercy was enough for Paul, God's mercy is enough for me. That it would be an example to you. If God gave grace to Paul, God will give grace to you. If God will forgive Paul for what Paul did, God will forgive you. If God will use Paul that way, God will use you that way. Like he said, this, Paul says, this is the purpose of my entire life, that it would be an example for everyone who would believe on Jesus to know that this is the mercy God offers them. This is the patience God offers them. This is the grace that God offers them. Somebody's hands up. Let's do one more and we'll wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, we usually come in and we say, hey, the Word of God is the foundation for what we're going to know about God, and we, we judge everything by that, and that's the right thing to do. But this is very, for us, if you want to talk, this is objective truth, right? That, that God has spoken and revealed Himself, and this is the standard for everything we know. But also, and I hope that I've said this enough the past few weeks, when you're talking about the love of God, the love that, he's, this love that surpasses knowledge, it's not just facts and, and you know, like statements of truth that we write down sentences and you memorize them. He's saying, I want you to encounter, experience my love. And I, and I hope I've said, God's talking about a relationship with him. 
an intimate personal relationship where you know him. He's your father and you're his child. And, and even this experience, like when you have these spiritual experiences, this one sounds a lot like Paul, right? Paul's on his way to Damascus, not looking for God at all. And Jesus shows up in a bright light, blinds him, speaks to him. And it's not Paul choosing Jesus. It's Jesus choosing Paul and saying, hey, I'm going to change your heart so that you'll love me and follow me. And here's how I'm going to use you. I'm going to give you what you need to become mine. And so I, I want to encourage you that based on the truth of the gospel and all the truths about God that we would, they, they aren't just truths. They aren't just truths about God, right? This is a being, a personal being who wants to have a relationship with you that you would know him this way. You would experience him this way. You would encounter him and you would live with him day by day, moment by moment, trusting him, relying on him, his spirit living in you. That you wouldn't just walk out and have a few more truths about God in your head, but that you would actually have the spirit of God in your heart. And so when God graciously and mercifully reveals himself in a subjective way where you get to experience his presence, we praise God for that too. Always in line with the objective truth of his word, like with what he's revealed, but never just stopping here. Like it's, it's never less than this, but it's not just this. It's that, that the truths that God has revealed throughout history, he, he wants to live them out now in you, in your life, that you're still part of this story. And so we praise God for those moments of grace. Those little, for me in my life, I always call it either whispers or glimmers, where it's like he just comes down, he's like, I'm just going to remind you this is true right now. And I know you just need a little bit more. Like, I know you're struggling, and I know you need a little bit more here. I promise someday you're going to get the full thing. Like, someday it's coming. Just keep trusting me, keep hoping. And those are great moments. Let's stop there this morning. Um, we've had great truths, great application. I pray that God is speaking to your heart and, and that you are, circling back around to where we just were, that you are getting a picture of God's grace, the fullness and sufficiency of God's grace. That means he loves you in a way that you could never dream. And he offers to you power that you could never imagine for his purposes to make him known in the world, for us to be that type of church. And that's what I'm just going to keep praying for us, that we would see that manifest in our lives, in this church, however he wants it to look. And it's probably going to be things that we haven't imagined yet. And that's great. I pray that we just see them. And I'm going to ask you, and I said this to you, would you pray these prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3? Would you, would you try to make it part of your daily spiritual disciplines to pray them for our church? I'm praying them every day for us. Just that, that prayer in Ephesians 1, that prayer in Ephesians 3. And let's just keep praying them together and asking God to do what only God can do. And so we're going to pray right now, and then we're going to have a time to sing and worship together, and our pastors, elders, wives, some staff people will be down here if you want somebody to pray with or talk to. But also, if you just want to come and pray on your own, you're always welcome to do that as well. But will you pray with me right now? Father, please... Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you more. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparably great power you give to those who believe. Open our eyes to see the ruling, reigning, resurrected Jesus above all things. And Father, help us be in awe of him and in awe of the thought that you have made us his body 
as his church and you've connected us to him. Pour out your power, Father, into our hearts that we might know just how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that we would experience it intimately with you in a way that surpasses knowledge. And I pray, Father, as we encounter you in your grace and in your gospel and in your love and in everything that you reveal in Jesus, that we would be filled with all of your fullness for your purposes, that we will love you the way that you love us, that we would love one another the way that you love us, that we would be your church and as we live out the gospel of your grace, that your manifold wisdom would be made known in the heavenly realms. Father, beyond anything we can ask or imagine, please do this. Do this because of Jesus. Do this for our sake. And do this for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Stand and sing with us.